listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. So, Eugene, Kenny Rogers wrote that song, The Coward of the County. You remember that song, right, back in the early 80s? What was the fellow's name? Do you remember it off the top of your head? Who? Tommy. Thank you, Andy. He knows his Kenny Rogers. He got us. Nice. So you're going to be my lifeline when I'm on one of them game shows I got to call. Anybody remember that song way back when, Coward of the County? Yeah. That, that was back when country music was uh, storytelling. Okay, so anyway, Coward of the County was one of my favorites as a child because that story was about Tommy, who had some run-ins with, uh, I think they were the Dixon boys, weren't they? Okay. Had some run-ins with the Dixon boys, and they picked on him, and then they, they picked on his, his girl, and then they, I think they, uh, they sure enough, did some wrong to her, and there came a point in the song where Tommy just needed to stand up, you know, and that was at the point of the song when Kenny would say he walked over to the door and locked it of the pool hall, and, you know, you just get chills. You're like, oh, it's about to go down now, you know, because Tommy's about to deal with this situation. Any father knows that what you tell your children when it comes to, to things going on, folks making fun of them, folks giving them difficulty, what we, we tell them that what we're to do is to ignore them. We're to ignore them and we're to walk away. We're to not pay any attention to what they're saying and, you know, they circle us and they, you know, they push us around in the circle and we're to leave them alone. But also every father knows that at some point, if the bully won't see that you're not going to give him his due by ignoring him, there comes a point where sometimes you just have to stand up to the bully. Now, we, we try to teach our children that we don't stand up to bullies with fist clenched. Because what's going what's gonna to end up happening with fist clenched? Fight's going to happen. Sometimes all a bully needs is for you just to stand up and say, no more. No more. And I think that's what we're going to see in this passage in Luke. Luke's been setting up an encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees. In fact, there are several where the Pharisees were in Jesus' presence. When Jesus would do something exhibiting his authority, and the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests would be present, and what Jesus would do or say would run contrary to the religious leaders of Israel. I think about this one that we looked at in Luke chapter number five, where the paralytic was brought into the midst of Jesus. His friends brought him there so that Jesus would heal him of his crippled state. And what was the interesting thing that Jesus said to this man while lying on his mat? He says, your sins are forgiven. Now, no one can forgive sins except 
for God. And everybody knew that. And they were astonished that Jesus would even say such a thing. And Jesus, knowing the hearts of those leaders who were there, thinking he had just made the most blasphemous statement in all of history, said to them, well, which would be easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or stand up, take your bed and walk. Well, anyone could say your sins are forgiven, and that doesn't necessarily mean they're forgiven. Watch. You're debt-free. Thank you. All right, you're welcome. You and me and the bank both know. (laughs) They don't care what I said. You owe your bills. So Jesus said, well, what would be easier to say? Your sins are forgiven knowing that nothing had changed about the person, or stand up and walk, you who have been crippled all your life. Well, obviously, the harder thing to say would be stand up and walk. And Jesus says, so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I say to you, stand up, take up your bed, and go home. And the man who had been crippled all his life stood up on strong legs, rolled up his mat, And walked home and everyone in the room was astonished and amazed except for those religious leaders who could not tolerate the fact that Jesus claimed to forgive sin. And then he walks out and he sees the publican that everybody hated, everybody despised. And Jesus made a beeline to him and said, hey, you know what? I've got a place for you in my group. In my entourage is a place for you, Levi come follow me. The Bible says that Levi, the hated tax collector, closed his books, got up and began to follow Jesus, which would have astonished them to that end. But Matthew, being a man of means, Levi, he prepared a feast for Jesus' honor. Jesus and his disciples were there in in Matthew, Levi's home, and they celebrated. And and who would come to such a celebration? Well, nobody but, but Levi's friends, no one but the ones that Matthew had walked with, those other publicans and other social and, and religious outcasts were there. The, uh, the Pharisees called it uh, tax collectors and sinners. And there they were celebrating instead of fasting. The religious leaders said, I don't understand why you would, number one, fellowship with them, but why aren't you fasting like all of the rest of us And Jesus says, when the bridegroom is in the house, that's not the time to fast. That's the time to celebrate because the bridegroom is bringing the promises of God to the people. Oh, the bridegroom will be taken away and then it'll be time to fast. But right now, you want to be on the right side of what God is doing, then celebrate with me. They'd hear none of it. And so now Luke brings us to this scene where Jesus is going to come to a head with the religious leaders over the most, uh, well, the most important issue in their culture, the Sabbath. The Sabbath first mentioned in Exodus chapter number 16 when God had brought the people out of slavery into the wilderness and said, I'm about to do some special things and I want you to set aside this seventh day of the week as a day of rest. And then a few chapters later in Exodus 20, God includes keeping the Sabbath as the fourth commandment. I want you to set that day aside and I want you to, in keeping with the record of Genesis, 
when God created all that is seen and everything we will never see. In six days and then on the seventh, he rested. In keeping with that pattern, I want you to rest as well. But it wasn't just about physical rest and it wasn't just about remembering God's activity in creating the universe. No, the Sabbath also had a a notion of being reminded that they had been set free from slave labor because it wasn't only the Jews that would celebrate the Sabbath on the seventh day of week of rest. It was also their servants and their animals. It was a reminder of the rest that God had given them. It was a reminder of the future promises that God has given. Don't labor on the seventh day. I know you want to. I know you think you could get more crops in if you just had one more day, but trust me. Trust that it's not about what you can do. What you do is just simply walking in obedience to me. Why don't you trust that I'm gonna take care of you and demonstrate that trust by setting it down, reflecting on me, enjoying one another. Can you just take a break? God was giving mankind the Sabbath because he knew their frailty. He knew that if left up to them, they'd go seven days a week, as many hours as they could, trying to get as much done as they could so they could amass as much as they could accumulate. And God says, you got to take a break. Not only that, you've got to have time set aside to focus on me both individually and as a community. So these Sabbath laws that were introduced in Exodus 20 were expounded on in the remainder of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and they passed down through the history of the people. And now in Jesus' day, they still obviously celebrated or set aside the Sabbath. But in Jesus' day, what had happened is... The rabbis, the leaders, those that studied the law had gone to great lengths to prepare guardrails. You know what guardrails do, don't you? Guardrails keep you from going off the cliff as you drive up through the Smoky Mountains. You come around the corner, the cliff is there, you would die if you went over the cliff. So these incredibly helpful county and state officials have put these steel guardrails there for you to avoid the cliff. Guardrails are good. You could say, well, we don't need them, but the danger is, is I might come around too fast and I might miss that turn and off the cliff. So to keep us from going off the cliff, we create guardrails. What these Pharisees over the years had done was bring the guardrail from a safe distance from the cliff to keep us from going over. As we interpret what does God mean by don't work and, and don't do these things and go, don't go away from your house too far, the Pharisees, the, the teachers of the law, the scribes had taken the guardrails, dug them up, and had moved them five miles from the edge of the cliff. You would say, well, that seems like a bit of overkill. Well, you'd be right. I mean, a a guardrail five miles away from the cliff is really, I mean, there's no way we're going to break these laws or these regulations, but wow, that's very inefficient, is it not? It's, It's way farther. 
But they took it a step even farther than that. They said that five miles away from the cliff was equal to God saying, don't step over the cliff. it's, It's like when a daddy says, have her home by 1130. What's a good rule of thumb for you gentlemen in the dating process? It's, it's a good idea to have her home by 11.15. Yeah, 11.15 be a good idea because you, you don't want to be hustling to get her home by 11.30 because that might be the last time you get to take her out. So having a buffer is good. It, it, it keeps you and me from falling into that human stuff. But you know what dad didn't say? He didn't say have her home by 1130, but I mean have her home by 830. And you pull into the driveway and you let her out and she comes inside because you've said, you know, your dad said 1130, but what he meant was 830. And that's what the Pharisees had done is they had created a list of rules, a a series of of data and regulations to keep the people from breaking the law, which was fine because they didn't want them breaking the law, but then they made their rules equal to God's prohibition. Let me me just read something. This commentary that I was reading behind, this has got some comical things in it you might like. For example... Traveling more than 3,000 feet from home was forbidden according to the rabbinical regulations of Sabbath. Because in the Old Testament, God had talked about not going away from your home. So what does God mean by that? Well, I guess God means don't take a journey away from home. So how far should we go? Well, it seems like God let them travel about a half a mile. So a little bit more than half a mile is 3,000 feet. You can't go any farther than 3,000 feet. That's the rule. That's what God said. Well, not necessarily that's not what God said that's what they said but they made it what God said so 3,000 feet away from home was prohibited but if one had placed food at the 3,000 foot point before the Sabbath so on, on, on Friday we took a happy meal and we marked out one two three twenty three thousand we set our happy meal down on Friday If you set food at the 3,000 point before the Sabbath, that point would be considered a home since it's where your food is. And since food was there, you were allowed another 3,000 feet beyond. Sound like middle schoolers are are coming up with some of these. So so what you're saying is, I can only only go two steps away from... So one... You know, that's middle schoolers. Love you, middle schoolers, by the way. Similarly, a piece of wood or a rope could be placed across the end of a narrow street or an alley constituting a doorway. So if you didn't want to put food there, you you could walk out there on Friday, you could mark it out 3,000 feet, lay you a piece of rope on your road, and then on the Sabbath day, if your girlfriend was 6,000 feet from your house, you could walk to the end of that, pull up the rope, say, I've gone out a door. Anybody remember WKRP in Cincinnati? Herb Tarlson had his, uh, had his uh, not walls, but he had, anyway, I digress. There are ways around. 
because it wasn't what God had said. There was also regulations about carrying items. Something lifted in in a public place could only be set down in a private place and vice versa. An object tossed in the air on the Sabbath could only be caught with the same hand. If it was caught with the other hand, it would be a Sabbath violation. If a person had reached out to pick up food on Friday when the Sabbath began, the food had to be dropped To bring the arm back while holding the food would be to carry a burden on the Sabbath. It was forbidden to carry anything heavier than a dried fig, although something weighing half as much could be carried two times. A tailor could not carry his needle, a scribe could not carry his pen, and a student could not carry his or her books. Only enough ink to write two letters of the alphabet could be carried on the Sabbath. A letter could not be sent. Clothes could not be examined or shaken out before being put on because an insect might be killed in the process, which would be work. No fire could be lit or put out. Cold water could be poured into warm water, but not warm water into cold because the warm water would cause action in the cold to warm it up, and that was a violation. An egg could not be cooked, not even by placing it in hot sand during the summer. Nothing, the, uh, nothing could be bought or sold. Students, you're going to like this one. Bathing was forbidden. Because while bathing, some water could be spilled on the floor and accidentally wash it. That would be work. You couldn't slide a chair back because it might make a rut in the dirt floor, which was too much like plowing. Women were forbidden to look in a mirror since if they saw a white hair, they might be tempted to pluck it out and that would be too much like harvesting. (laughs) Other forbidden things included sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, grinding, kneading, baking, shearing, washing, beating, dyeing or spinning wool, trying to uh, tie or untie a knot, Catching, killing, or skinning a deer, salting its meat, or preparing its skin. It was to people crushed by the unbearable burden of man-made legalistic regulations that the Lord Jesus Christ spoke these words. Come unto me, all of you who are burdened and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke on you. Learn from me. I'm meek and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your soul because these clowns have completely missed the point. So it's this scene that Luke brings us to this morning in Luke chapter number 6. If you have your Bibles, turn with us. Luke says, on a Sabbath day, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them with their hands. Now we live in a citrus state. I don't know how you would feel if in your orange groves or your grapefruit groves you would feel about teenagers 
walking, cutting through your grove and seeing fruit hanging on a tree and pulling it and eating the orange while they're going through it. That might make you mad. That might cause you to say, get out of the grove. I don't know. I don't know what your deal is. In fact, that may be against the law. Each state has all kinds of different regulations about who can pluck and who can just eat off of trees and don't pull off the side of the road in that state and pull an apple, you'll go to jail. So all of that's different for each state. What Jesus' disciples were doing, however, walking through a grain field and plucking a head of grain and kind of rubbing it in their hands so that the, the, the husk on the outside would, would become brittle and then brushing it, blowing the, 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 the husk off so that they could get to the grain morsels and eating was completely protected by the Levitical law. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, we won't look at it, said... For folks that are traveling, it's perfectly legal for you to be traveling along the road and if you are hungry to see grain being grown and go over and grab you a couple of heads of grain and eat it. Now don't take a basket over, don't fill your basket, don't take a sickle and harvest someone else's growth, but you can certainly, to fill your hunger, you can go and you can eat to sustain life. The Pharisees, it says in verse number two, but some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? They weren't incorrect about Deuteronomy 23, 25. They knew that it was okay to pick grain in order to sustain life if you were a traveler as long as you weren't harvesting someone else's crop. They knew that was legal. The problem was the, the disciples applying Deuteronomy 23, 25 was a violation of their Sabbath code on a Sabbath day because the Pharisees in their code had said on the Sabbath to pluck a head of grain, which is perfectly legal in Deuteronomy 23, 25. But on the Sabbath day, to pluck a head of grain was harvesting and a violation of the prohibition of work. And to rub it with your hands was too much like threshing the grain where you would take and you would beat the husk off of it. And blowing the husk off so that you can get to the fruit was too much like winnowing where you would throw the grain up in the air and let the wind take away the chaff. And so when they see this happening, they come to Jesus and they go, Jesus, why are you letting yours do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Gotcha, Jesus. You're violating the law, was he? Nope. He was certainly violating their tradition. But as I read from a commentary that talks about God's word and, and, and has a lot of helpful insights and definitions, is this and this the same thing? Absolutely not. That's got to go so that this might be what we hear. And so they came to Je- I know that was, I, that was unplanned. Okay. That's <laughs> what you get when you come here. All right. So they come to Jesus and say, don't you know you're violating the law? Jesus went, hmm, well, let's talk about that. And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? 
He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. Jesus says, hmm, interesting that you should be holding me accountable to your regulations that aren't mentioned anywhere in the scripture. Let me ask you if you remember a story that I'm sure you've taught to the children in synagogue. You remember the one about David, our, our hero king, the one who was on the run from Saul, the villain of 1 Samuel? And how that on the run from Saul, David, when he came to the city called Nob, N-O-B, where the tabernacle was set up, and he came to the priest Ahimelech, and he said, Ahimelech, do you have anything to eat because I'm on the run? Uh, The king has sent me on a a message, so I'm on a business run to do things important. Do you have any food that I can have? Well, David was lying. The king hadn't sent him anywhere. The king was trying to kill him. But David lying to the priest said, you have anything to eat? Ahimelech says, "I, I don't have anything here. The only thing I have here are the loaves, the 12 loaves of bread that are inside the tabernacle sanctuary on the table. That's the bread that is placed in the presence of God and is to be left there until new bread has been baked and can be brought in and replaced. And then we take the day-old bread and the priests are allowed to eat it. God says that we're the only ones who can eat it. You remember when it says in Exodus, right, David? We, we, can't, we can't eat that. You, you can't have that. Only we can have that. David's like, yeah. Can I get that? And Hemlech's like, well, okay, but are, are you and your, your, your men, are, are you ceremonially clean? This is 1 Samuel chapter number 7. Are you, are you uh, 21, are you and your boys, are, are y'all ceremonially, like, like, have you washed and have you kept yourself from wickedness? Can, can, can I even trust that? And David's like, you bet your life. The man had just lied about what he was going. Yep, you bet, man. We're we're clean, bro. Could have get that bread. Ahimelech gave David the bread, and off he rode with his merry men doing what? Eating bread that was against the Levitical law. I think, because a lot of question about what Jesus was doing right here. What I think Jesus was doing was saying... Has anybody ever made David the bad guy of that story? Fellas, I mean, have we ever told that story and held David accountable for breaking the law? The answer to that question is no. In fact, David was the hero of that story. So yeah, he ate a little bread that was forbidden, but he was hungry and he was on the run and he was God's man and he was anointed and the villain was coming after him. So of course not, we've never painted him in a bad light. And Jesus says, I think, right. And then he blows their minds when he says this. Verse number five. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In Matthew's account, he says, Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath. Jesus is saying, fellas, I don't know what you think about what you're seeing, 
But I'm God's representative. And as his representative, I have authority to decide what is and isn't appropriate on the Sabbath. All your silly regulations, that's your thing. Sabbath is my thing. So I think I know what can and can't be done. Now, I just imagine it's not shown us here, but I just imagine that those Pharisees were like, we got to go. And off they went. What was Jesus doing? Jesus was demonstrating his authority. They tried to catch him. And he says, you missed the point. The Sabbath is God's gift to mankind. It's not to be used like a club to beat people over the head with and keep them under these endless regulations. These legalists had created what was and wasn't proper, and then they were holding everyone to that same standard. And Jesus basically said, you don't get to do that. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Well, then Luke says, but it, it, it ups a little bit. This may have been the same Sabbath. This may have been a different Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he says, well, there's another one. He entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. Now, what does this mean that his hand was withered? Well, it had either been diseased or it had been in an accident or something had caused injury to this man's hand and it had become atrophied. I mean, it wouldn't move. It was, uh, it was, it was pulled up against his body of some sort, like a, like a, 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 a thing that he couldn't fix and the doctors could not change. Well, in that culture, with the teachings and regulations of those scribes and Pharisees, it was stated that anyone in that condition must be under God's judgment because it is an ailment that can't be fixed. So something either in their life or their parents' life or their grandparents' life has finally come down to God. Is, he's, he's judging this one. Because of something. And so therefore, everybody who saw this man just assumed that there was something evil in his life or in his past or he would have full capacity, which he didn't. And it was his right hand, which according to them, because you know that we're mostly right hand dominant. I know most, there's there's some of you who aren't, but most of us are right hand dominant. So for it to be his right hand, it was considered, well, that's an obvious strike of God's judgment. But yet he was there worshiping, he was moving forward, even though according to that tradition, he was being judged by God. And Jesus sees this man sitting in the synagogue. If you read Matthew and Mark's account, you'll discover that the Pharisees had already seen this man and had decided they were going to put Jesus to the test. You see, Jesus had already broken their Sabbath regulations, the technical kind. But he, as a rabbi who apparently had the ability to heal, well, that's work. And so we're going to see, we're going to put him to challenge to see if Jesus will take the bait 
so that we can accuse him and move him out of the way. Because if he's not going to join with us, if he's not going to find his way in our way, then we've got to get him out of the way. And so the scribes and the Pharisees watched him. It's a word that means out of the corner of their eye. You've done this before. You know, you've, you've, you've spied on people. You know, you, you're kind of looking off out of the corner. Like, what, what are they wearing today? I said, who are they sitting with today? Oh, yeah. What are they driving? What are they driving? This you know, we were spying. They were spying on Jesus. And at the opportune moment, Matthew and Mark said they pounced. They watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. Verse number eight. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come stand here. Sir, could, could you get up and, and come here for me, please? And I'm sure that man who didn't like to draw a lot of attention to him, everybody's already looking at him. Everybody already has an opinion of him. And I'm sure he's kind of, me? Yes, sir. Could you come on up here for a minute? Up he comes in front of everyone with his, with his thing. He can't fix the source of the comments being made about him, probably his family, the, the things that set him apart and, 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 and made him feel like less than all of the other community. There he came, and he stood next to Jesus. Verse number nine. Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save a life or destroy it. See, Jesus knew what they were doing. He knew they were trying to catch him in a violation of Sabbath law, according to their tradition. And he has the man stand there and he goes, okay, fellas, let me ask you a question. What does the law say to do on the Sabbath? To do evil or to do good? And he waited. What does the law say to do on the Sabbath? To save a life or to destroy a life? What does it say? The book of Mark says in Mark 2, verse 4. I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 4. But they were silent. It's, it's kind of like you guys are being silent. You, you know the answer, and you're being respectful. You're not blurting it out. Oh, leave a no, you're not. So you're, you're being respectful because of the environment. He's asking them a, a legitimate question. What, what does God want us to do on his Sabbath? Do good or do evil? See, here's the problem with answering Jesus' question. They know the answer. But if they say to him to do good, then they're not going to be able to hold on to their traditions. If they say to him, well, to save a life, Jesus, if we've got to choose between saving and destroying, certainly God wants us to save a life. Jesus was talking about uh, how the even you and Matthew, if you had a sheep 
that fell in a pit on the Sabbath day. And you heard it neighing, crying out, because I'm in the, I'm in the pit. I need out, and I can't get out. Every one of you would go to that pit and reach down into it to pull out that sheep. Because you wouldn't want it to die in that pit. It just makes sense. You're not working. You're not, you're not doing your, 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 your livestock thing. You're going and you're helping an animal in need. Every one of you would do that. Of how much more value, he says in Matthew, is a man than a sheep. There he stands. In front of everybody. Withered hand. Can't fix it. The butt of the joke. And Jesus is saying, what do you think God would have us to do for this brother? On the Sabbath. Leave him like it is. Or restore him. And in silence they watched. Mark says he looked around at them. I like to think that he looked at every one of them in the eye. As they're looking away. I like to think that he kind of got. You? Hey. Yeah. No. I like to think that it got incredibly uncomfortable as Jesus just waited. So, so nobody's going to answer, huh? Looking around at all of them, he said to him, verse 10, stretch out your hand. Now, would have been a silly request from anybody else. There's no, no telling what he had to do in order to get his arm into the shirt, you know, get it up. If he, if he could stretch out his hand, he wouldn't be in this predicament. But Jesus says to him, you, you've got up, you've come up here, you've obeyed me now. Now just stretch out your hand. It says in verse 10, And he did so as he began to stretch it out, began to loosen up. So when it was extended, it was completely restored. Now just imagine you were in the synagogue and you weren't one of the Pharisees. You were just a part of the crowd that just happened to be there at 3 o'clock when the fight was going to happen. See this man stretch out his hand. And you know what never happened? Jesus never touched him. He just spoke. And the man was restored. I'm just imagining that there were gasps going around and there were folks going, Boy, what you want Jesus to do, you want him to have a mic. So he can hold it out, you know, drop it. He didn't do that. That's what we do. Jesus just stood there as the man experienced a picture 
of the restoration that God had sent Jesus to provide. You see, Jesus didn't come to heal physical ailments. If he did, he left a whole lot more folks sick than he left restored. What Jesus did in healing was demonstrating little glimpses of the total restoration that God is ultimately going to bring about when his plan of redemption is completed. He was was showing and demonstrating God's power so that they might believe in his person. Outstretched his hand. And the folks who weren't the Pharisees were astonished, shocked. I like to think if I'd have been the one that went up against Jesus when I saw this thing happen and I recognized he just did what he could do on the Sabbath. He restored the man and God would have certainly wanted him to do that. Jesus, I'm sorry. Will you forgive such a jerk? That's not what they did. Look look what verse 11 says. But they were filled with fury. This word fury, it's it's an anger that is out of control. Like this is I saw red and I'm about to do something stupid because I'm just, I'm unhinged. I'm triggered. The boys like to watch this YouTube group. Um, what is it called, Kay? The, the one that does the, he, he freaks out. You know, the, the, they do the shots and the crazy shots. Dude perfect. What is it they call him when he gets all triggered? Rage, rage monster or rage something? That's what these guys became. Just enraged. I just imagine that they're just like, oh, no, he did not. Boys, we're out of here. Let's go. And out they went. Matthew and Mark both say that they went out immediately and began making plans how to destroy him. How to kill him. Boys, it's going to take a full court press. It's going to take all of us. Mark even said they linked up with some folks that they didn't even like, the Herodians, so that they might come together and hatch a plot to take that guy and rub him out. We have got to get him off of this scene. Crazy. That they were so connected to their traditions that they were incapable of seeing and hearing and experiencing the presence of God in Christ. Showdown over the Sabbath. You know, we could take this particular set of, uh, of stories, we could take them in a bunch of different ways. We could apply them to our own life, our own time, in a lot of different ways. We could look at some stuff. One of the first things I thought of we could look at is the reality of legalism in our life as well. You know what it is, is it's when when we look at God's Word and we interpret God's Word and, and we decide, well, this is what it looks like to follow God in our age. This is, this is how one 
acts. This is where one goes. This is what one says and doesn't say. say. This is what one wears and doesn't wear. This is what worship sounds like and doesn't sound like. This is a a translation of the Bible that one reads and a translation that one probably shouldn't read. We've got all kinds of things. And, And you know what? Traditions and preferences and all of those things will never cease to be. They'll always be because as long as we are opinionated folks with preferences, we're going to have opinions and preferences and there's nothing wrong with that. But your opinions and your preferences can't be something that you expect to hold others to hold as well. Because when you do, that's called legalism. When I hold you to the standard that I've created based on what God has said, this is what I'm going to do, and I hold you to that standard, then that's called legalism. And we don't have the authority to do that. Because we're not the Lord of worship. We're not the Lord of the Scriptures. We're not the Lord of fashion. Now we can look at scripture and go, well, you know, that's not modest because there's a whole lot more you showing than ought to be. That's okay. In fact, we need to be doing more of that brothers and sisters holding one another accountable for that kind of stuff. But those preferences, we've got to be careful. I also thought about these guys who are so interested in keeping the rules that they missed the point. They equated keeping the rules with walking with God. Walking with Jesus by faith and empty religious ritual keeping aren't the same thing. You see, you walk with the Lord and then you let him be the Lord of everyone else and you hold to his word and you follow him by faith at every turn. So we could take it that way. But I think in our time and culture, what is becoming more and more present is this idea of cancellation. You're hearing it all over the place. There are philosophies and opinions growing in our world, in our nation specifically, that define things for us. And should you dare go against culture for any reason, What's happening if you have a platform right now, if you have a voice right now, if you have a job in the public sector right now, what's happening to those people in the spotlight is if they should dare have a different opinion than the social opinions. They're getting canceled. They're getting fired from their jobs. They're being taken off the airwaves. The books are being taken off the shelf. We're not even going to print some of them anymore, even though... He's dead and gone. If you don't fall in line with what we're doing, you're canceled. Right now, we're watching that from afar. But y'all know that once Pandora is out of the box, you don't get her back in. It's going to continue to build. And, And you know, we might not be the next group in line, but we're way up in line It's going to be everyday, ordinary Christians who who just want to know my Jesus. 
walking with him and and sharing him with others and and live a life according to the principles of his word and, and train our children to do that and maybe even educate them according to those same principles. Whatever it is, we want to be able to do that. Thus far, we've had a right to do that. But times, they are changing. Cancellation is coming. And I just want to give you four little statements. As we look at Jesus, who could have waited until the service was over, and everybody had gone home and said, Hey man, could you come up here for a second? While nobody was watching except his disciples, he could have said, Stretch out your hand. And he'd have stretched it out, and Luke would have recorded it, and it would have still been miraculous, but he didn't. He knew their heart, and there was a line that had to be drawn in the sand. You can't hold me accountable to your regulations. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, and I'm drawing that line distinctively and deep right here. It's a showdown, and I'll not cross it. If you're going to follow God, you come to my side. I'll not step into yours. Christian, if you stand with Jesus today in the face of cancel culture, you will have to take your stand on truth. Because that's where Jesus is going to stand, on truth. He is the embodiment of truth. He is the word of truth. Jesus stood on the word. Because Jesus is the word. So if you're going to stand with Jesus that is going to be your foundation. If you're trying to stand with him now and the Bible is just a part of your life and not the foundation of your life, the words of God that you build your life upon, well, you're going to find yourself standing in a place different than Jesus. If you're going to stand with Jesus, you've got to stand on the truth. If you stand with Jesus on the truth, it will require that you draw unpopular lines in the sand. Just make sure the lines you're drawing are Jesus' lines and not yours. Truth lines, and they're going to have to be clear, and you're going to have to make statements. You're going to have to say there's one way to God, and His name's Jesus. All roads don't get to heaven. All religions aren't worshiping the same God. There's only one God, and there's only one way to Him, and that's through God the Son crucified in your place and for your sin by faith in the resurrected Messiah can you be made right with your creator and no other way that's unpopular they'll want to cancel you but the gates of hell cannot stand against the gospel you might have to say things like Christianity and nationalism cannot be combined it's not one and the same It's Christianity no matter where you live in this world. And you can't take God and marry Him to country. It don't work that way. It's Christ for me, a citizen of heaven. That's a bold line you might not like to make it. We've been making a claim that abortion's murder. That ain't popular. It's not ever going to be. But that's a line in the sand. Why? Because God is the author of life. And to take it in any form is murder. 
You might have to say things like marriage is between a man and a woman. One man and one woman. Let's be specific. Which has always been unpopular. But, but that's, the, that's, God's, that's God's thing. You might even have to draw a line that says God made them male and female. Discovered through biology and not defined by feeling. That's not going to be a popular line, and that's probably going to be the one they try to cancel us on. Because they're going to say that you don't love people that are struggling to figure that out. No, the answer is we love people because Jesus loves people. Regardless of what they call themselves, regardless of what they think about themselves, regardless of their actions, regardless of the things that they pursue that we know are contrary to God's design, we love them, but we're not going to celebrate what God says is contrary to His design. That'll get you canceled if you're interested in that. If you're going to stand with Jesus, you're going to have to stand on truth. If you're going to stand with truth, you're going to have to draw unpopular lines in the sand. If you stand with Jesus on truth behind unpopular lines, you will face opposition, and it'll be hostile. It'll be hostile. But Jesus said, ah, don't worry about it. They hated me, they're going to hate you. In this life, you're going to have difficulty, but don't worry about it. I've already overcome the difficulty. See, they're going to take my life, but they can't keep it. They won't be able to keep yours. You just keep following me. If you stand with Jesus, openly opposed, then let it be in ministry to others and not self-defense. If you're going to stand with Jesus behind the lines he's drawn, inviting everyone on the other side of the line to come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'm going to be there standing behind you going, Come to him. Come on, y'all, please come to him. He's the you're looking for. If you're going to do that, let's make sure that it's in the ministry to people and not standing on this side of the line hurling insults to defend ourselves. Because that's not what Jesus did here. Jesus said, y'all know who I am. You got to decide for yourself. You with me or you with them? They're wrong. I'm Lord. But I'll lead you in the way that you should go. So today I hope you leave encouraged to let go of some of those things that you're trying to do to make God happy and just follow Him on the basis of truth. Let Him lead you into the ministry that He has for you. Probably today. If you're letting. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you that he is Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord of all traditions. We ask that you'll show us those things that have become traditionally important to us. Hills that we're dying on that you wouldn't even call us to battle on. Give us the courage to let go of those things so that we might be gracious builders of your kingdom with those that might have different opinions. Father, I pray that you'll give us the courage to stand with Jesus on truth. 
to draw lines of truth and to stand with Jesus as we beg the world to come to Him, crucified in their place for their sin. God, we pray that you'll give us courage to stand against culture, not as a loudmouth blowhard, but as a loving representative of your Son, so that through our lives we might point others to Him. God, we thank you for the opportunity to be together as a family. Use us in whatever way you see fit this week. We love you and trust you. Christ in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody say it.